time to be alive. I'm Carly. And this is Pinky. Um, at the end of last week's episode, we sort of left you guys with a cliffhanger. We said that we would announce our special episode on Tuesday when Pinky began the, pro the promo for us because we weren't exactly sure that we would be able to schedule this particular interview. However, here we are with the one and only Joe Castle. Joe, thank you for agreeing to come on to our episode and being so flexible, especially with all this crazy weather we've been experiencing in Eastern Kentucky. The ice storms, the snow, the flooding, it really seemed like it was not going to end there for a little while. For those of you that are just now joining us, we did a epi an episode 11 on a crime native to our little town, the Ashland tragedy. And it was a huge hit, like our best numbers to date. This episode is still available for streaming wherever you like to listen, and if you haven't heard it yet, I encourage you to listen to that episode first so you aren't completely lost. I also want to thank Josh Blanton for connecting us with Joe so that we could meet with him and discuss the details of his book, The Ashland Tragedy, Murder, a Mob, and a Militia in Kentucky. Pinky and I have already gotten our copies of this newly published book, but you can get yours directly from the book website or on Amazon like we did. We haven't quite wrapped it up just yet, but it's a very good read so far, so we definitely recommend it. So Joe, Carly and I were both born and raised in Ashland. Um, I moved away to attend the University mm -hmm. of Kentucky, but I've been back for the past year due to the pandemic and a few other things. Um, what is your relationship to the Ashland area? Well, I was born in Ashland. I learned how to walk and talk in Ashland. And uh, I was shipped away as an army brat to the island of Oahu to a place called Schofield Barracks for a couple of years. And then when we came back to the mainland, most of my time was spent uh, near Fort Knox, Kentucky, Elizabethtown, Kentucky. After that, uh, I came back to Eastern Kentucky to Johnson County, where I'm at presently. And uh, I still have a lot of family in Ashland, uh, aunts and uncles and cousins. Uh, of course, my mom's from Ashland, all her large family. And uh, I went to work in Ashland, worked there for 28 years. And then I retired. Gotcha. So I, I consider myself a native son. Mm -hmm. and when I speak of the people of Ashland, I don't say they, I say we. Right. And I think I have the right to do so, and I'm proud to do it. I read a little bit of your biography in the book, mm -hmm. and um, I saw that you particularly enjoy creative writing, and that I believe you've published a short story. Is this your only current book? This, this is. Okay. Uh, I, I started writing several years ago when my son was in college. He was a journalism major. And uh, he, he actually got me interested in writing as a hobby. Uh, he was uh, writing for for school and uh, he was uh, doing very well. And, uh, and it got me interested in writing. So I wrote a few short stories as a hobby and uh, had one published. And I never, never was actually an aspiring author or anything like that. Uh, but uh, this thing, the Ashen tragedy, just captivated me. And it actually consumed me for the longest time. And I knew that it had to be written. <clears throat> the whole story had to be written <clears throat> so that people would know exactly what happened. 
Right. Because as we said earlier, we um, we did episode 11 on the Ashland tragedy. And basically, we pulled from various sources and resources on the internet, um, whether that be articles, whether that be other podcasts, um, and just, just what have you, what you can find on the internet. But obviously, going through the book, you guys spent a lot of time doing extensive research. Um, how did you gather all the information needed to write this book? And about how many years did it take? Because I saw that you said it took several years to get everything together. Well, I first heard about the Ash tragedy about 15 years ago. And I was surprised that I hadn't heard of it before. And when I went, started, I started going to the library to see what I could find about it. And each article that I found about it, I thought, Man, this thing is uh, this thing is huge, and it, and it captivated me. It consumed me. And asking around, I was surprised that not a whole lot of people had heard about it. And then I also found out that those who had heard about it didn't know the whole story. Right. So I decided to uh, go ahead and see if I could put this thing together, and. Uh, write it in a book as a whole story and uh, but yes I, I spent uh, almost 13 years researching this thing I mean I looked everywhere uh, the library <clears throat> was very helpful uh, I was able to get microfilm from different um, different libraries different uh, newspapers uh, I actually got some uh, information from the National Archives in Maryland um, I looked everywhere I could find uh, to get more information about this uh, this tragedy. And the more I found, this thing began to unfold in front of me like I was watching a movie. And uh, so I knew that I had to uh, put it together and write it down and uh, so that people would understand and, and know the whole story about the actual tragedy. Yeah, when you talk to people, it's usually pretty divided. You'll have one, like one half of people like, yeah, I heard of it. And then the other half, they have no idea. Uh, I think I learned about it a few years ago. Um, I didn't know too many details. But then when we started our podcast, and it's a true crime podcast, we thought, you know, what, what better way to get uh, more acquainted with the story than to visit on one of our episodes. Um, this might be a, a tough question, but what was one of the most significant findings from your research? Was there anything specific that jumped out to you that you weren't aware of before? Uh, probably the probably the most significant thing was the uh, the facts surrounding the uh, state militia. Mm -hmm. You know, we uh, we think of the army today as, <clears throat> as a well organized, well disciplined army. Uh, at the time in Kentucky, it wasn't like that. It wasn't like that at all. And uh, <clears throat> I was able to find out uh, just exactly how the uh, volunteer militia was. And it was a volunteer militia. They were very inexperienced. And um, so that had, that. you know, look, let me say this. The, um, the Ashton tragedy could very well have been titled as the Ashton tragedy. Right. Because once the murders were committed, 
Fanny Robert Gibbons and uh, Emma Carrico, things just went from worse to worse and tragedy after tragedy just happened. And especially there at the riverbank, <clears throat> and I don't want to give away too much, I need to be careful. Right. So, so I don't say too much about it or otherwise people would have no reason to read the book. But <laughs> um, the, uh, the army or the militia that was sent to protect the prisoners, they, they were young and they were very inexperienced. And um, one thing led to another and there you have another tragedy right there on the riverbank. Mm -hmm. And that was probably, uh, I don't want to say the most surprising thing I found, but it was one of the things that just kind of highlighted um, the whole the whole tragedy story. <laughs> right, it was kind of like a chain reaction of events from what I, what I did get to read. Um, so we don't want to reveal too much either. We don't want to spoil the book for anyone, but there was uh, just a few things that caught our attention because like I said, we did a fair amount of research, but you know, nothing in comparison to what you guys were able to put together. Um, one of the things that caught my eye, um, and if you, don't, if you don't want to speak about it, just say we can move along, um, was the amount of support that Ellis Craft did have because we know that he confessed and recanted several times we know that he kind of had a, a a bad reputation or a troubled past, if you want to say that. But apparently he had his fair share of visitors and favorable press during his incarceration. Do you know why that was? Okay. First of all, uh, I think you're talking about George Ellis. Now, it's, yeah, it's, I'm sorry. it's easy to get him confused because George yeah. Ellis and Ellis Craft. George Ellis was the one who confessed. And it was reported that at least three times that he recanted on his original confession. Uh, Ellis Craft, on the other hand, was looked, looked upon as the ringleader of the three men who were suspected and convicted of the crimes. Mm -hmm. Ellis Craft did have a shady past. Um, he had a, uh, a, a record, criminal record probably as long as your arm. Um, he was just one of those characters, you know, that uh, <laughs> he was a bad person, to be blunt. Uh, but yes, George Ellis, uh, he was the one who originally confessed, and it was reported that he changed his confession uh, at least three times, and uh, the book explains in detail about that, uh, whether he actually did or not. Gotcha. Um, another thing was the, um, I believe it was Detective Norris. He immediately kind of um, presumed old man Gibbons guilt. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that stood out to me, which I, I found to be interesting was um, the correlation between the fires, that there was a fire at their home. And then previously when he was building a jail, there was another fire. Um, I don't even really have a question about that, but I think Carly and I kind of assumed that Detective Norris um, suspected old man Gibbons because he was out of town, but there seemed to be a little bit more behind that. So I just wanted to say that it was really um, intriguing to learn because there were, there were several factors involved as to why he thought that old man Gibbons was responsible for the crime. He, 
Detective Norris was hired out of Springfield, Ohio, to come in because he was a professional detective. <clears throat> Most small towns at the time uh, didn't have a town marshal who was equipped or experienced enough to investigate crimes such as this. So the Citizens Committee got together and decided to hire a professional, and they decided to hire Detective Norris out of Springfield. And he came down, and uh, he was a man of uh, a valued reputation. Um, he searched, and he looked, and he probed into everything he could possibly find. And then when he decided to uh, talk to Martha Gibbons, the mother of the two murdered children, and found out that they had had, she and her husband, John, had had domestic trouble. He, just, he decided that um, based on not only his interrogation of Martha, but a letter that she had showed to him from John from 11 years ago. And um, based on uh, her, his interrogation of Martha and that letter, he decided that John Gibbons, the old man, was the murderer of these children. Uh, he was convinced, and he had a lot of other people convinced that he was right. And because of that, John Gibbons became the most uh, hunted and hated man in America for a while. It was wrong, but he thought it was right. Right. Um, there was a, another detective, um, Alf Burnett, that um, I believe it was Marshall, who wasn't a particular fan of him. Um, he said that, uh, well, Alf, Alf kind of went with the theory of um, the three men being innocent, that it was a, a neighboring, uh, three members of a neighboring black family responsible for the murders, um, but that he was kind of thrown off trail on purpose to get him out of the way because he was kind of hindering the investigation. Is that correct to my understanding? Yeah, that's correct. Al, Al Burnett was a young detective. He had previously been in the newspaper business, so he knew, he knew and understood the power of the press. Um, he hadn't been in the detective business for very long, but he wanted to come to Ashland to see if he could I don't know, basically cash in on the reward, but uh, he just, he decided to search and look, and he was, basically he was hired by one of the uh, suspect's families to try to find information that would prove their innocence. And uh, he stayed on their payroll until their money ran out, basically. But uh, he would he would point fingers at anyone else other than uh, the three suspects to uh, to try to you know to try to persuade the uh, the populace that uh, the three uh, suspects were innocent, especially Ellis Craft and William Neal, and uh, he worked long and hard at it, and uh, he was uh, he was quite a character, and he created a lot of chaos and confusion throughout the whole thing, and. Uh, I think the book uh, pretty well explains exactly what he did, what his intentions were, and what the results were.
Um, so we saw that you recently um, did another podcast and uh, Brandy Clark with Ashland Tourism was involved. And we saw her say that she hopes that um, Netflix will pick this up. Um, what, what would be your vision for the book? Is, is a film adaptation uh, a goal for you? Well, you know, that was the first thing I thought when I, when I first heard about and, and understood this story, that this was basically a movie just <clears throat> developing right in front of my eyes. And uh, I think it would be an excellent, but, but to be honest with you, I think it would take more than a two hour movie. I think it would take a, a three, four, five or six part uh, series to, um, in order to portray all the drama, because once once this thing happens, the drama never stops, the action never stops. Um, but yes, uh, Brandy's very interested. <clears throat> excuse me, in getting it on some sort of film, whether it's a documentary, uh, docudrama, or some sort of film, um, because it would it would lend itself to. Uh, tourism in Ashland, not because of the murders, but because th this is also a story of the people of Ashland. Right. How the people of Ashland were resilient, um, how they were courageous and determined to see the end of justice and how they pulled together to see that happen. And that, that basically is inlaid in the fabric of the Ashland. And not just the Ashland people, but the people of Boyd County as well, um, because they were they were threatened as well. The whole county of Boyd County, the whole county was threatened by the governor. Mm -hmm. if you read that, and then, but they all pulled together to see the end of justice by law, not by lynch law, but by justice. And it's the same way today. I mean, it's in the fabric of the Ashland people to help one another to pull together. And you could see that in the recent ice storms and the floods and everything, how people have come together mm -hmm. to, you know, to help everyone. So, yes, uh, it, it's very important, I think, uh, as far as uh, Randy's concerned, to, to bring notoriety to Ashland. I, I mean, this is a part of history, right. Ashland's history. It's, it's not just Ashland's history, but it's Kentucky's history. This is one of the darkest hours in Kentucky's history. And the entire nation was captivated, captivated by the whole thing. And they can be again, to be honest. Yeah, we totally understand that because while we cover crimes that are, you know, all over the nation and overseas, we try to highlight um, Kentucky as much as possible. And some people might think like, why would you want to highlight Kentucky in a manner of, you know, people being massacred or, or killed and, um, I just echo your sentiments. I think that it's it's an important uh, important part of history, and there are stories that need to be told um, on behalf of the victims. So I definitely identify with that, and um, I hope that comes to fruition. Um, that's really all the questions we have for you. Um, do you want to remind the listeners of where they can purchase your book? One one thing, uh, am I talking to Carly? Is this Carly? This is Audra, but Carly's right here. Okay, Audra and Carly. Mm -hmm. um, 
there is uh, a version of the Ashton tragedy that I published myself with a red cover. It has a uh, burning house on the front of it. And I wish um, that my video would work, but it won't. But anyway, um, I did this because I had a spot reserved at the Pogue Landing Days in 2019. I think it was in September. And I wanted to get this book out as soon as I could. So I got impatient and couldn't wait for the uh, for the uh, publisher's book to come out, which is the one you have. So if anyone has the red book with the uh, burning house on the front, don't fret because only the uh, cover has changed. The uh, content is basically the same, 99% still the same. Uh, so uh, the new, the new book published by Arcadia Publishing, the History, the History Press, is available wherever good books are sold. Um, and it'll be easy to uh, snag your own copy. Um, so there you go. And actually, I do have one final question. Do you foresee any other books in your future? <laughs> I've got a couple things in the pipeline, but nothing real pressing. Uh, I'm not an aspiring author. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm basically a person who writes. I'm, I'm not really a writer either. I just kind of fell into that. But uh, I do have a couple of ideas. And, uh, you know, we'll kind of see how it goes. But I'm retired. I'm a grandfather. I've got grandkids to take care of. And they keep me kind of busy. Right. Uh, so whenever I get the time, maybe I'll dedicate myself to doing something else. Um, I don't know if you, either one of you have ever heard of the Stella Kenny murder. I don't think so. Mm, no. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, but that was kind of fed to me, and uh, and a person thought that I might want to write about that. So uh, I'll see what happens. Sounds good. Um, just want to thank you again for your time. And hopefully we can speak to you again soon if this turns into a Netflix deal or something like that. Well, uh, and the last thing I would say that this is a, a very captivating, intriguing, and incredible story. And it's all true. Uh, the Ashton Tragedy, and like I said before, it could easily have been, been uh, titled The Ashton Tragedy because it's more than just the murders of the two children. Not mm -hmm. to downplay that because... Uh, you know, that's what kicked everything off, but uh, things just kind of went from bad to bad to bad to worse from there. And uh, until they finally came to arrest about three years later. And uh, everybody from Ashland should know about this. And uh, not only everybody from Ashland, but everybody from Boyd County and really everybody from Kentucky should know about this because it is one of the darkest periods of Kentucky history. And uh, it's one of the things that kind of solidified the people of Ashland and Boyd County, brought them together, and uh, basically revealed the moral fabric of the people of Ashland, and it still exists today. And, uh, you know, the, the people of Ashland are special. They really are. And they've come together in times of, of need, uh, whether it's a um, natural disaster or a man-made tragedy. You know, the people of Ashland are special. They come together 
to help each other and to do what's right. Yeah, we can definitely say we recommend the book because there's a lot of information in the book that isn't necessarily readily accessible on the internet if you just do a, a random Google search. So for those who want to know the details of the tragedy and like Joe said, the following tragedies, um, definitely pick this up and we appreciate your time and we hope you have a good evening. Well, thank you very much. And I'm honored that you asked me to be here. And I hope you guys uh, do very well. Thank you again. Okay, so that was our interview with Joe Castle, author of The Ashland Tragedy, Murder, a Mob, and a Militia in Kentucky. Like we said in the beginning of the interview, we already covered The Ashland Tragedy back in December. It was episode 11. Check it out if you haven't already um, this was kind of just, uh, like I said, it was an interview with him about the book, his perspective on the tragedy, uh, why he wrote it, his specific findings. And I just thought it was cool because we keep saying we're going to follow up on stuff and we haven't. So this is our first time. And it also goes with our March Madness theme, Kentucky edition. What did you think of our first interview? Um, I think it went really well. It wasn't as long as we thought it was going to be, but also I'm like really unprepared this week and I didn't write a lot of questions. <laughs> well, part of the reason is because we couldn't ask too many specific questions because like he said, he didn't want to reveal too much and then nobody would buy the book. Yeah, buy the book, you guys. Um, so yeah, if you guys liked the interview or are interested in hearing more interviews, let us know, and that's something we can set up in the future. Um, I think it's going to be cool to start having guests and various interviews and kind of take our podcast game to the next level. But with that being said, we're going to wrap it up, not before Crime of the Week. Carly has one for you. Yes. So... I have, well, I have like one and a half crimes of the week, so the half of one is not, it wasn't an actual crime committed, but it almost was, well, not really almost. So today, I, my husband works at the post office, and he is a mail carrier, and today I went and I took him lunch. And so when I got there, he was like going through the packages of the next houses that he was about to deliver at. And he pulled out a package that was this sweet podcast microphone. And I said, hurry, throw it in my car. (laughs) But he wouldn't. So whoever's in Ashland that ordered that sweet podcast microphone near Blackburn Avenue. Carly. Hit me up. <laughs> no, for real. If you listen to us and uh, it was you getting the microphone, send us a message because, you know, we could collaborate or you could just give us tips and we could give you tips and we can just be one big happy Ashland, Kentucky podcast family. Yeah, and you're also welcome that my husband is like a, a an honest mail carrier or else that would have been mine. Um, but the real crime of the week is that apparently it's bike week in Daytona Beach, and it gets even cringier than that. The naked cowboy, who is apparently famous in Times Square. Square. I've never heard of this guy in my entire life. 
Yeah, I've seen him on a, I've seen him on different stuff on like TV and things. I think he's made a couple of appearances because there was two, and there's about to be a third um, season of The Real World New York, which I know is before your time, but they're bringing it back. Anyway, I think I saw him on the second season, but I've seen mm-hmm. him on other things. He, like Carly said, he is famous in that area. Um, yeah, so he is, I'm very disappointed in him, actually, because he doesn't have a mullet, and that's the only thing that would make it more America, but he was arrested on Saturday in Daytona for aggressive panhandling and resisting an officer without violence. He literally plays the guitar in nothing but a cowboy hat, underwear, and cowboy boots. Also, what, one, what's aggressive panhandling? Two, what is resisting an officer without violence? Is it just like, no, I will not be arrested? So, I don't know. But anyways, um, yeah, so that's our crime of the week. Um, And so that's pretty much all we have for today. Yeah, it's going to be kind of a short episode, but... That's okay. Um, We are going to do exactly what we did last week and leave you with a cliffhanger as to what we're doing next week because, like I said, we're trying to stick with this Kentucky theme and (laughs) we are uh, trying to get some things confirmed so we can provide more content like we did today. Um, Anything you want to say before we end it? No. Something has ticked her off. Um, All right. That's it. Yeah, so we'll see you next week for some episode. Some episode, (laughs) most likely based in Kentucky. Yeah. Holla, baby, flamingos.